A reading from the book of Genesis. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, See, I am now establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, all the birds and the various tame and wild animals that were with you and came out of the ark. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all bodily creatures be destroyed by the waters of a flood. There shall not be another flood to devastate the earth. God added, this is the sign that I am giving for all ages to come of a covenant between me and you and every living creature with you. I set my bow in the clouds to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will recall the covenant I have made between me and you and all living things, so that the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all mortal beings. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O Lord, make known to me, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth, and teach me, for you are God, my Savior. Your ways, O Lord, are love and truth to those who keep your covenant. Remember that your compassion, O Lord, and your love are from old. In your kindness, remember me, because of your goodness, O Lord. Your ways, O Lord, are love and truth to those who keep your covenant. Good and upright is the Lord, thus he shows sinners the way. He guides the humble to justice, and he teaches the humble his way. Your ways, O Lord, are love and truth to those who keep your covenant. A reading from the letter of St. Peter. Beloved, Christ suffered for sins once, the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous, that he might lead you to God. Put to death in the flesh, he was brought to life in the spirit. In it, he also went to preach to the spirits in prison, who had once been disobedient. 
while God patiently waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few persons, eight in all, were saved through water. This prefigured baptism, which saves you now, it is not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord be with you. With your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Glory, Glory to you, to you Lord. O Lord. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert, and he remained in the desert for forty days, tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. What I would like to do this morning on this first Sunday of Lent is to revive an old way that goes all the way back to the Church Fathers, especially St. Augustine. Our Gospel reading this morning is quite short, but it is quite profound. It's quite profound and really sets the tone for the entire Lenten season and also the foundation of the Christian life, which extends far beyond a mere 40 days. And so what I want to do this morning is to spend a few minutes going through this particular gospel with you. So if you have uh, a missile or if you are a good listener or whatever, even better than a book in front of you, that would be good because I think the richness of this particular gospel right here at the beginning of this first Sunday sets a tone and it lays out the next 40 days. 
Gospel of Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. It's only 16 chapters. It's the first one written probably around the year 60, 61 AD, then followed by Matthew and Luke. John is an entirely different gospel. John's gospel was written probably at the end of the first century. Some have even placed it into the second century. That's a little, that's a little, uh, it's a reach, but it's possible, it's possible. But the gospel of Mark is very short compared to the others. The Gospel of Mark is a kind of uh, Dragnet Joe Friday presentation. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. He doesn't go through a great deal of embellishment and a great deal. He's the first one. Matthew and Luke will add their own sources from the oral tradition that they have received and other sources, and they will add to it and give it a fuller, deeper meaning. But this is, this is the draft, the first edition of the gospel. And you'll see it right here in our reading this morning. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the desert. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit, for Jesus is preparing now for the public ministry that will take place for the next three years. And in order to prepare for that ministry, Jesus will be led by the Holy Spirit into the desert. The desert is a place of aridity. It's a place of lifelessness. It's a place where they believe the demons resided. Uh, it's an absence of life. Uh, it can be quite foreboding and a very dangerous place. So Jesus goes into the desert to be tested on the home field of the devil. He doesn't meet him in church or in the temple. He doesn't meet him in the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the visiting team, but that's where he confronts him. So there is no home field advantage in a sense. And he's out into the desert and he remains in the desert for 40 days. The 40 days in the desert, of course, as you know, connects them with the wandering of Israel in the desert for 40 years before entering the promised land. So Jesus is, in fact, fulfilling and copying, if you will, the 40-year sojourn of the chosen people of God from the book of Exodus, Jesus is now microcosmically putting that together in the 40 days to be tested as the Hebrews, the Israelites, were tested in the desert for 40 years before entering. And as you know, they faced their own temptations, not of which they all passed with flying colors, as the golden calf reminds us, and various grumbles and mumbling against Moses and Aaron, that God has not delivered the goods. Where is this God that you went up the mountain to see and talk to and come down and give us two tablets of, of do's and don'ts and so on? So the Israelites at this particular point, uh, they're a rather difficult people 
to deal with. In fact, they're very difficult to deal with. And that's part of the temptation as well. And he goes for the 40 days and is tempted by Satan, as the Israelites were. I'm using Israelites, the Hebrews, before. Um, and the angels minister to him. Now, if, as you know, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, it's much more elaborate. You have the three temptations, the confrontation, the conversation between Jesus and Satan. Stones to bread. Uh, the display of Jesus as the Son of God. Jump off the temple, and God will send his angels to hold you up. And the last of the temptations, of course, I will show you all the kingdoms of the world, and if you just bow down and worship me, you can have it all. You can have all the power, all the glory. Just think of that. Just one little act of recognizing me as supreme being and not your heavenly father. In all of those temptations, Jesus is being tempted to deny himself as the son of God and to change allegiance to Satan. Is it really any different throughout history? The constant temptation to trade your birthright. See, because you have to understand that the thing that Satan hates most about you is that you have a chance that he blew. You have a chance that he forfeited. You have a chance to be in the presence of God for all eternity. And misery loves company. And if misery loves company, Satan roams the earth looking for a lot of company. Because from the moment we come into existence, Satan wants to claim us as his own. And through baptism, baptism, we are sealed with the mark that we are God's sons and daughters, God's people. But we can forfeit that. We can trade that heritage for some version of a golden calf, political power, stones to bread. What material abundance do you want? that will fill you up and satisfy you and make you be somebody. How many people do you know walk around? Their being is defined by what they have. If they have more, they are more. If they have less, they are less. How many people do you know who seek celebrity and status, notoriety, always in the spotlight, hungering and thirsting for approval and recognition, constantly carrying their resumes and their trophies, their placards, their testimonials with them. That defines who they are. But Jesus Christ throughout this says, I know who I am and whose I am.
And that's always the temptation for us because Satan wants to get you to forfeit your heritage, your birthright through baptism, that you will give up the most precious thing you have, salvation. The question is whether or not you will be redeemed. You have salvation. It comes through Jesus Christ. Redemption comes from your ability to accept salvation. That you're, that you're part of the deal. St. Augustine was fond of, fond of telling people, God builds the boats but expects us to open the sails. So many people want God to build a boat, make the sails, produce the wind, lead, give them the GPS to get to the safe harbor, and then rest and fish all day. Doesn't work that way, does it? We have to do our part. But we are constantly in the desert, the desert of our everyday world. Look at our world today and how much life and death are in contest with each other. How much we are surrounded by temptations to a materialism, a celebrity status, the lust for power. My goodness. My goodness. The reason why we get so little done very often in public life and why it seems that those who are supposed to be entrusted with the common good seem only to manage their own good or those of their group because of power. The great Judy Garland said, one of the most powerful um, deviacs is, uh, is power. Aphrodisiac is power. You know, why, why, does, why does the young 23-year-old hang on the arm of the guy who looks like a prune? Power. Power. You can be a trophy for power until the next trophy comes along. That's what happens. But you see it. Clutching for power, anything to get it today. Why so little is done, so little is accomplished. And that's why it's so cutthroat, so vicious and so divisive and dividing today. Temptation, the desert waits for us every day. Waits. That's our challenge. And the angels ministered to him. After John had been arrested, now that's a bit of a shock, isn't it? It's a kind of a speed bump. Here's John, the last of the prophets raised up, the one who will herald Jesus. In fact, he does it at the Annunciation as he leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. He will go forth as a voice crying in the wilderness, crying in the desert, make way straight the path of the Lord. And what does he get for it? He gets arrested. It's a sober reminder that the cost of discipleship is not a fairy tale. Blue skies, green lights, and you live happily ever after. The cost of discipleship, as the great Protestant theologian of the last century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, reminds us, 
is that when Jesus Christ calls a person, he bids that person come and die. Now that's a cold bit of ice water in our face of let's play kumbaya. When Christ calls us, he bids us to come and die. Die to ourselves. Die to the imperial ego and self. Die to all of the temptations that are swirling about in the desert. And hold on to that precious heritage of our salvation. And John will pay for his life on the way to eternal life. Because when Christ calls a person and bids him come and die, he at the same time bids him to come and rise to eternal life. True life, lasting life. Jesus comes and he proclaims a good news, a gospel. It is the time of fulfillment. That is, the promise to Abraham, the promise even before then, that indeed, right after the banishment from Eden, God, God will not leave them orphans. Abandonment, banishment is not abandonment. But there will come a Messiah, a Savior, the same one made to Noah, one made to Noah, one made to David. Uh, the fulfillment. The Greeks have two words for time, chronos and karyos. Chronos time is, math is mathematical time. It's timex time. It's measurable time, quantifiable time. And then we have karyos, which is sacred time. It's that time of ecstasy when the sacred and the holy breaks into ordinary time and lifts us out of time. We have that on a secular level, don't we? Oh my goodness, I lost track of time. What happened? You got taken out of mathematical time and you got placed into a kind of sacred or grace time. The, the, it melted away. And then there's the time that drags on like molasses, like I'm doing right now to you, okay? Uh, but hang in there, hang in there. I'm, I'm doing my best, okay? Hold on, you know. You gotta give old people a break. Um, you don't, but you'll be there one day. Um, and so uh, it is this time of fulfillment. God, the promise keeper, never goes back on his promises. See, God's delay is never God's denial. It's just that God may not be operating on our time schedule. And so the temptation is, ah, God doesn't care, God doesn't exist, God's indifferent, God's doing other things. No. Every day that God gives us is a time of mercy. Another day to get our house in order. And so now is the fulfillment. Now the promises made all the way back have now been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now understand that, please. The word kingdom from the Greek is, a, is, is not only a noun. Kingdom is not a geographical and political entity. 
Kingdom is a verb. It's the active rule and reign of God. It's God ruling and reigning. That still is rather abstract, I know. How is the kingdom of God at hand? In the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the kingdom. That's not abstract. You don't have to go to Harvard to understand that. It's in the person of Jesus Christ who is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God made visible and flesh entered human history and entered the human condition to reveal to us the Father's name as suffering, redeeming, saving love which will reach its apex from the cross. Moses wanted to know the name of Jesus. It's answered on Good Friday. Suffering, enduring, faithful love. Redeeming love. That's the name. That's the name of God. That's the kingdom of God. That's the act of rule of God. The merciful, forgiving love of Almighty God. And it's at hand. There is no later, more convenient hour. There is no delay. I'll get back to you later. Put you on hold. It now calls for you to make a decision. And you can't say, well, wait, I'll, let me think about it a while. I'll come back. No. You have been confronted you have been offered and addressed the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ is now present with you and through the Holy Spirit in you and it now calls for each and every one of you to make a decision does your life belong to Christ or does your life belong to the evil one who roams the desert it's that simple it's that simple because to be lukewarm is to be vomited from the mouth of Christ. That's the decision. And we make it every day. Every single day we decide, am I going to live this day for Christ? Or am I going to live this day for the evil one? Every day. And what must we do? Repent and believe. Repent. Repent. Repent is not, I'm sorry. It's not a throwaway line. Sort of like, have a nice day, whatever that thing means. Uh, you know, if you want somebody to have a nice day, make sure you know what they want and consider a nice day. But anyway. Um, repent. Repent is the mourning, the true contrition, from the depth of one's being that one has first and foremost offended God. It's not that I offended my neighbor first or I was rude or impolite or insensitive and all of those kinds of things. No, 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 no. Repentance is an offense against Almighty God in whose image and likeness we have been lovingly made and sin is telling God, no, thank you, I don't need you, see you later, get lost. 
exactly what sin is. Sin in our freedom is a rejection of the God who wants to love us into eternity. And it says no. You know the beatitude, blessed are they who mourn. They are mourning over sin, the effects of sin, the destruction that sin brings about. You have to repent, reform from the depth of our being that we have offended the one who loves us unconditionally and who love is redemptive and whose love is present in the person of Christ. And believe in the gospel. Matthew and Luke will say, reform, reform. You need both. For if you really believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, and not some idea, not some concept, not something that flows from the lips and rolls around in the head, but Jesus Christ is really alive in your life, the person of Christ, that belief, that belief is something that transcends, is above, and becomes a way of life. It becomes a way of life. It becomes a transformative power, the way in which you live and value, the goals you seek, how you treat others. What are your priorities in life? Otherwise, it's just academic. It's just spiritual nonsense. It's saccharine. It really isn't worth the paper it's written on. But if Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, there is a transformation, a reformation, a reforming of our being. And that results only from truly believing that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And so this morning, in this short gospel, we have really not only Lent, but the whole of the Christian journey that we are invited to take, not in an abstract, theoretical a kind of way, but in a concrete living of our daily lives. It becomes a way of life. It becomes our second nature. It becomes the way that God always meant us to be. And in this holy season and beyond, it is God's invitation to become as God always wanted us to be, his loving sons and daughters, both in time and in eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.